Welcome to Cold Steel, the Canadian Journal of Surgery podcast with your hosts Amir Farouk and Chad Ball. The goal of the CJS podcast is threefold. The first is to highlight the best research currently being completed by Canadian surgeons. The second is to offer educational topics for both surgeons and trainees alike. And most importantly, the third goal is to inspire discussion, thoughts, creativity, and career development in all Canadian surgeons. We hope you enjoy it. On this episode, we got to talk to Dr. Francis Wright. Dr. Wright is a surgical oncologist at Sunnybrook Hospital in Toronto. She dissected out the topic of nodal disease and melanoma for us, and this was a fantastic overview of a topic that I think many residents find confusing. I know I enjoyed it, and I hope you will too. Once again, Dr. Wright, thank you very much for joining us on Cold Steel. Uh, we know how busy you are, and so we really do appreciate you taking out the time to come and uh, speak with us. I wanted to ask you a little bit about your training and your um, background. Where did you grow up, and uh, where did you do residency and uh, the rest of your training? I grew up in the UK until I was 12, and then we moved to Hamilton, Ontario. Um, I did undergraduate in med school at U of T. Um, and then I went to Queens, which was great for my residencies in general surgery. Um, I then came back to Toronto and did surgical oncology in Toronto. And then I've been on staff at Sunnybrook since then. Um, some of us have a little quiz at the end of this year. And uh, so I thought we would use the opportunity to sit down with someone who's a world expert on melanoma to talk a little bit about uh, melanoma, especially given that you are one of the authors on some of the landmark trials in this area. And so I was hoping that you could talk about uh, MSLT1 and MSLT2, uh, talk a little bit about how those trials were set up and um, how that really changed the way that we manage uh, nodes in melanoma. Sure, uh, I can certainly talk about that. And thank you very much for asking to have me on. It's, uh, it's an honor. And I was just talking to one of my residents today, and he was saying he'd been listening to the podcasts and uh, found them really helpful. Um, so that's great. Um, so MSLP1, um, so um, wide local excision plus sentinel node biopsy or wide local excision alone. Um, inclusion criteria for that trial, so melanoma 1.2 to 3.5 millimeters in depth and clinically node negative. And um, those patients um, had their surgery. If their sentinel node was positive, um, then they went on to a completion dissection. And obviously, if their sentinel node was negative, they just had the wide local and sentinel node. In the arm that just had the wide local excision alone, um, those patients went on to um, just observation, and if they developed uh, palpable adenopathy, then they had a therapeutic lymph node dissection at that time. So that was kind of the overall setup of the trial. And the 10-year follow-up from that trial was published in around 2014 in the New England Journal. Um, so, um, fairly important trial in melanoma world. Of course, just taking a step back, all of the studies beforehand 
or the studies beforehand had looked at whether there was benefit to doing an elective lymph node dissection. So patients were randomized in the studies in like the 1990s. They were randomized to either no surgery or an elective lymph node dissection. So they either got a full groin or a full axillary dissection or just watch and wait and then deal with any problems that come up. Um, So in that trial, that trial had no survival benefit. There was some subset analysis uh, with, I think, one group of patients maybe having a benefit. I think it was men, and they had ulcerated tumors. But after that trial, um, after that trial, there were, patients didn't get elective lymph node dissections anymore for, when they were clinically node negative. And so that came, then Donald Morton came along, and um, that was when the idea of the sentinel node biopsy came along. And then, as we just discussed, MSLT1 was a 10-year follow-up uh, published in 2014. Um, so MSLT1 was actually a negative trial. Um, and there's some controversy in the skin cancer world um, a bit about this, not really amongst the surgeons, um, but maybe a little bit more amongst the dermatologists. But So overall, a negative trial. But when you did a subset analysis, uh, which was a planned subset analysis of the patients that had um, disease. And in each group, uh, whether you have the sentinel node or whether you developed palpable adenopathy, about 20% of patients had nodal disease. And when you looked at those patients, so if you had sentinel node positive disease and then you had your completion dissection, the 10-year survival was around 60% or so. When you looked at the patients who had the therapeutic lymph node dissection, so they had palpable disease and then you you had your groin dissection or axillary dissection, um, those patients um, had a 10-year survival of 40%. Um, So kind of the analysis that the melanoma surgeons took from that was if you were sentinel node positive, then uh, there was a survival benefit to having a sentinel node done. Um, if the sentinel node was negative, then you got some great information, but we haven't made you live any longer. So the landscape's changed a little bit now. So the sentinel, sentinel node is in addition to being a therapeutic modality, if you're sentinel node positive. But now, if you're sentinel node positive and if you have greater than a millimeter of disease, um, you also are a candidate for adjuvant therapy. So when we look at adjuvant therapy for melanoma, there are two groups. There's immunotherapy, which any patient uh, can get, whether you're BRAF positive or BRAF negative. If you're BRAF positive, which is a marker on the melanoma itself that about 40% of patients have, then you could potentially get a drug like dibrafenib and trimatinib or BRAF MEK inhibitor. And both of those um, drugs, dibrafenib and trimatinib has longer follow-up and there's a survival benefit to getting those drugs in the adjuvant setting. Um, The immunotherapy I think it's just been one year follow-up so far, um, but there's a recurrence-free survival benefit between patients who got immunotherapy um, versus placebo. 
So the benefit of the Sentinel node, just to summarize, so number one, if it's positive, it's therapeutic. Uh, number two, if you've got more than a millimeter of disease in your Sentinel node, then um, you're a candidate for adjuvant therapy. And then, of course, it gives you better staging and prognostic information as well. So MSLT2 um, asked the question, was there a benefit to doing the completion dissection or not? So patients with the inclusion criteria for MSLT2 was um, positive sentinel node. And then those patients were randomized either to a completion month node dissection or they were randomized to ultrasound monitoring and only if they developed palpable or only if they developed disease did they have a completion dissection. We know from the literature that if you have a positive sentinel node with melanoma, your likelihood of having further disease if you do a completion dissection is about 20%. So we do a completion dissection or we used to do a completion dissection on about 80% of patients, and they had no disease there. Right. In other words, the sentinel node biopsy got all the disease. That's correct. For 80% of the patients. Exactly right. So in MSLT2, again, the question is, does completion lymph node dissection improve survival for patients with a positive sentinel node? So patients were randomized to either just the surgery, and in this study, it included patients with head and neck melanoma and then extremity and truncal melanoma, um, or they were randomized to ultrasound follow-up. And so it was a pretty intensive follow-up, so they got ultrasounds every four months for two years, and then every six months for three to five years, and then they just got clinical follow-up for six, from years six to ten. If at any point in the ultrasound follow-up there was an abnormal lymph node, either that was palpated or the um, was seen on ultrasound, then the patient got a biopsy. And if it showed melanoma, then they got a metastatic workup. And then, depending on what the metastatic workup showed, um, a completion dissection. So if you were in the observation arm, Getting your ultrasounds, something looks bad, you do a biopsy, it shows melanoma, metastatic workup's negative, then you went on to a completion dissection. So that was the observation or the, the study arm, I guess, and then everyone else got just immediate completion lymph node dissection. Right. Make sense? Makes sense. Right? Yep. Okay. So that study, the was reported in 2017. Um, there were about 1,940 patients, and the median follow-up was about three years. Um, and what that showed was that there was no survival benefit to doing the completion dissection, which, which is a big deal. Um, it's because it's a lot less morbidity for patients to not have, especially a groin dissection. Oh, you know, axillary dissection has morbidity as well, but the groin dissection has a lot of morbidity with it. Um, 
So no survival difference at, um, between the two, between the dis- immediate dissection arm and between the group of patients who were in observation. They did um, some subset analyses, um, and there were no subsets of patients that benefited from a completion dissection. Um, so whether the sentinel lymph node metastases was bigger or smaller, whether you had more than one or greater than three, um, so no patients seemed to benefit from doing the uh, completion dissection. One thing I noticed is that they, one of the planned subgroups was uh, having a positive node on PCR. Um, I, I think that's not normally how we look for nodes. Was that just sort of to see if that would give us an indication as to who would benefit from a completion dissection? Yeah. Yeah, so I, I, I must admit, I don't look at that data particularly a lot. Um, but the PCR was used because there was a trial, the Sunbelt Melanoma Trial, and they were used, they used PCR in that study um, to identify really, really tiny amounts of disease in lymph nodes. Um, so there was, there was a, a move in the melanoma world around that time to, to, you know, to assess and see whether if we identified really tiny amounts of melanoma in lymph nodes with PCR, if that was important or not. And um, it, it didn't show in um, MSLT2 that, uh, that it was in, important to do. So this this trial was uh, made it a lot harder for residents to get completion node dissections under their belt. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it did. So, so but much uh, better for patients. Absolutely, which is which is obviously what matters more. <laughs> um, <laughs> I have a couple of questions related to this. So, who are you still doing a completion node dissection? Like, for example, the patient that comes in with clinically positive nodes. Um, are you still doing a completion node dissection on those folks? So that's not a completion node dissection or, patient. So who presents? So I think who presents with nodal disease now? Because the majority of patients have a sentinel node biopsy, right? So the indications for sentinel node are, you know, most patients greater than zero point eight millimeters in depth. Uh, that's when we'll start offering sentinel nodes to to patients. Um, when it's between 0.8 millimeters and 4 millimeters in depth, that has a that has a survival benefit. Um, always, um, or that's what we kind of assume from MSLT1, just because we expanded the inclusion criteria a little bit. If a patient has a melanoma greater than 4 millimeters in depth, then that patient, because they've got a higher rate of hematogenous spread. Um, that patient, you're just doing a sentinel node for them for local control. You're not going to make them live longer because from the sentinel node, um, mainly because they've got a higher risk of the disease spreading hematogenously. Um, so the patients who now present with nodal disease, and we do dissections on, um, tend to be patients either melanoma unknown primary, which is a well-recognized phenomenon in the uh, melanoma world. The assumption is they had a primary, the body's immune system dealt with it, 
and some of the little cells escaped and went to the nodes, but we never find the primary lesion. So melanoma unknown primary. Um, patients who had a really thin melanoma, like less than 0.8 millimeters, and then they develop nodal disease. And that happens about 2 to 3% of the time with patients with a less than 0.8 millimeter melanoma. Um, if someone had a false negative with a sentinel node biopsy, um, if someone recurred after having a sentinel node that was positive and they're on observation, um, those are the main scenarios. Um, or, uh, you know, if someone was older and, like, we offer sentinel node now to patients as long as they're reasonably, like, medically well up to the age of 80. But if someone's, like, 82 or 83, then we don't usually. But sometimes those patients will come in with palpable nodal disease. So if someone comes in with palpable nodal disease, we will do a metastatic workup, often with a PET scan and an MR brain. As long as they don't have metastatic disease, then those patients are the ones who will get a therapeutic lymph node dissection. I do, I do not typically offer patients who've had a positive sentinel node and, a, and have no other evidence of like, like a clinically node negative. I typically offer all of those patients observation. I don't, um, I don't do a completion dissection on them. That segues nicely into the next question I was going to ask you. How do you frame this discussion in the office with patients, and um, are you following them the way that patients were followed in MSLT2, or are you stretching out that observation period? Yeah, that's a great question. So the way I frame it to patients is um, I tell, I say to them, you know, you've had a positive sentinel node. Um, I tell them the next steps in treatment, which is typically to do, uh, we typically do CT scans. Um, as a, a staging workup, um, I tell them the likelihood of us finding distant metastatic disease with just a positive sentinel node is very tiny. Um, I tell them they're going to see the medical oncologist, and if they've got more than a millimeter of disease in their sentinel node, that they're going to be a candidate for adjuvant therapy. And then from a surgical point of view, I tell them that we don't operate on patients with positive sentinel nodes. Um, I say you've got a chance of the disease coming back there, but we will follow you closely with ultrasound and we will deal with any problems that come up. And I tell them we've got two big randomized control trials where um, it does not show a survival benefit to removing the lymph nodes right now. Um, the other trial, in addition to MSLT2, was the DCOG SLT trial, which is... Um, a German trial, uh, which essentially had the same design as MSLT2, um, but was about, I think it was about a quarter of the patients, but it same, showed the same thing. And so are you following them, um, maybe I missed this, every four months for the first year and then every six months? Yeah, probably not that much. Um, so typically... Typically, I follow them every six months for a couple of years um, with ultrasound, usually on the same day as the clinic visit. They also get CT scans as well, often every six months to check for metastatic disease. 
which is why I, I feel okay with not doing the ultrasounds every four months because they get a lot of imaging in the first few years. And then sometimes if they're very, like if they have a lot of nodal volume, like sentinel nodal volume of disease, then I'll follow them maybe for three years with for six months, like for another six months. But usually after that, I'll switch to yearly. And again, they're usually getting CTs every year as well until five years. And if they come back, let's say, with clinically palpable nodes, um, are you repeating their PET scan uh, or if something comes up with yeah. an ultrasound? Yeah, so I, I do. Because um, there's a... There's the number of times that patients have the patients have isolated nodal disease, at least in the study, is quite low. It's about seven or eight percent. Uh, my personal experience is that it's higher than that because um, often we're still picking up disease quite early. Um, so sometimes it'll just be picked up on ultrasound, and I won't be able to feel anything. Um, or I'll pick up something in clinic that's maybe one or two centimeters in size, or the patients will. Um, they'll call and say, hey, I feel something in you know, my groin or my armpit. I need to come in, and then um, and we instruct the patients on what to look for. Um, so we do, we do a biopsy of the lymph node, um, either in clinic or radiology does it, if it's too small for me to feel, and then I repeat the metastatic workup because... Um, uh, you need to make sure they don't have metastatic disease. I know you were an author on uh, MSLT2. What was it like to be part of such a big, multi-centered, really practice-changing trial? Um, how did that kind of get set up? How did you get involved? And what was it like being part of that trial? Um, so I think doing these multi-institutional trials, I mean, firstly, it's a really important way for um, like you know surgical really all of medicine to move forward um, and I think I really started appreciating clinical trials when one of my partners was Jean-Francois Boileau who's in uh, McGill and he is like a huge advocate of clinical trials and he worked at Sunnybrook for a while and he, he was awesome and like was so enthusiastic about clinical trials so that was that, that was like really changed my outlook um, so I, I do think their practice changing, like you say, and very important. I think what I did was I think I emailed Donald Morton, um, and said I was interested in joining the trial. Um, they sent me all of the information and then it took a long time for the, uh, lawyers and the REB to, um, agree to it at our site. Um, we had to get an external review. Um, I think it was Dave McCready that did it um, because the REB wasn't sure that this was an appropriate trial because the standard was to do the completion dissection. Um, but um, eventually we did get it going. Uh, it's super rewarding. It, um, first of all, I think it's important that patients have access to these trials, um, our own patients. And then just from a connecting you with the other, your other clinicians around the world who are interested in the same questions and the same disease, it's a really great for meeting colleagues and networking, I guess, um, but um, really highly recommend it. Um, I was fortunate 
um, MSLT2 had funds um, that they could send internationally. So it was partially it was partially funded by Donald Morton and his funding agency, and then my medical oncologist um, lead Teresa Petrella also supported the trial as well. So um, that was um, that was very fortuitous. How did you know that Donald Morton was doing MSLT two? How did you hear about it? I I think it was like at the, at the meetings, like people people talked about it at the meetings, um, like the FSO and other meetings. So you you knew it was going on. Like it was recruiting, I think, for ten years. Like it was it was a long time period. Um, yeah, that sounds painful um, in terms of the REB and all that kind of setup. Um, yeah, but you know, eventually it eventually it, it worked out. Um, it's it's easier now. Like I think um, I think now they're just they're more accepting of the surgical trials. We have a, a trial that will be opening in Canada now called Melmart, which we participated in the pilot um, again from this network of international surgeons who are interested in melanoma, and it's taking patients with stage two melanoma, so clinically node negative. Um, either greater than a millimeter melanoma and ulcerated or just greater than two millimeters. And it's uh, comparing a one versus two centimeter wide local excision um, for those patients, which will kind of reduce their extensive surgery. Um, but again, that came from uh, meeting up with this network of surgeons and um, they'd meet at least once a year at the um, the Society of Surgical Oncology meeting and Usually, like six a.m. very early. Um, but you you go and meet, and they talk about kind of some of the next trials that are coming up, and see if people are interested. That's so cool. That's awesome. I yeah, think, it's I think, great. I think you, I saw you put a tweet out about that, and I'll I'll link to it in the show notes. Um, I wanted to, <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to switch gears a little bit and talk a little bit about IL two injections. Um, I know you you were you're sort of a um, pioneer and kind of pushing this modality. Can you talk to uh, us a little bit about how you kind of got interested in this and um, a little bit about IL-2 injections, uh, how, wh- which patients do you use them on, and how does that fit into your practice? Sure. Um, so I started using IL-2 probably around 2009, and that was... Um, and that was... I think it was predominantly my mel- the melanoma practice at Sunnybrook was really starting to like really start to grow uh, really grown by that point, and so we were starting to get patients who had in transit disease, so recurrence of their melanoma between the primary site and the nearest nodal basin. Um, so, um, so we needed an an option to treat these patients. Um, and I had heard of uh, Claire Temple, Claire Temple Oberly, who then worked in London, but now works in Calgary. And um, Claire had been, she'd used uh, limb perfusion for a number of years, but um, had found it had been quite morbid um, in terms of patient outcomes. And she started uh, using IL-2. So I talked to Claire and she was very generous and she, she shared her protocols and kind of um, provided email advice on what to do with patients. Um, and essentially, um, 
essentially I just started doing it so that we could provide the service to our patients. At um, at that point in time, um, no one there was really no adjuvant therapy for melanoma. The adjuvant therapy was interferon, which had a three percent survival benefit. Um, and there was really nothing effective in terms of metastatic treatment for melanoma in system or nothing that was effective systemically. So there were very, very limited options for these patients. Um, limb infusion or perfusion, we could send people down to the U.S. to do it. Um, and a few people went down. But uh, again, it was morbid. One of the patients came back and she had a like a compartment syndrome from the limb infusion. So uh, I talked, essentially I talked to Claire and um, and uh, started using uh, interleukin-2. The drug company, um, Novartis, uh, supplied the IL-2 free until about 2014 or so. And um, after that, it didn't supply it for free and the patients had to pay um, so at that point, I put in an application to the Pan-Canadian Drug Review, or PCODER, and um, with the support of Cancer Care Ontario and Teresa Petrella helped us as well with that, and we got it approved across Canada, and then, cancer, and then each province had to approve it so that the patients didn't have to pay. So now it's on the formulary, and um, IL-2 is being used in about probably about six or seven centers across Ontario. That is super cool. Uh, I didn't realize there was a Calgary connection. That's awesome. Yeah, no, Claire's fantastic. Like, and uh, she, I'm not sure where Claire heard about, like where she heard about it. Um, There are a number of papers from Europe, I think Germany and the UK, a bit being used in like the 1990s and the early 2000s. So I'm not sure if she read it just in papers or if she actually went and saw it done. Um, but she was actually the first person who started it in um, in Canada. Um, what I do now is I inject patients with IL-2 and then one of my dermatology colleagues um, and I also give uh, the patients a retinoid and Altera um, cream, and so they kind of get a triple therapy, um, and that increases the complete pathological response rate. So we're just getting that hopefully published soon, and with the triple therapy, the complete response rate is about 58%, and with IL-2 alone, um, it varies between kind of 40 and 50%. Wow. So um, it's... it's, uh, it's it's pretty effective and you know we do it in the office and patients generally do pretty well with it. And this is in conjunction with um, other adjuvant therapies or is this by no, itself? No, this is just this is just um, like just with creams. So Aldera and retinoid cream um, that along with the IL-2 essentially they're immunotherapies they upregulate the immune system. So you're doing a local therapy that's upregulating the immune system. Gotcha. That's super cool. I did want to ask um, about one of your other research interests uh, as well, which is sort of the patient perspective on their cancer experience. In particular, I love 
the paper that you recently published uh, in CGS looking at the impact of hernias on um, cancer patient experience. How did you get interested in sort of the patient experience side of things? Um, and where do you see us going with that type of research, especially as PROMS and other patient reported outcome uh, measures really start to take off? So that particular study was predominantly done by uh, Rahima Nenshin, um, who's now in Hamilton. And that study was looking at patients with giant hernias and looking at, like, essentially looking at their experience while they waited to have surgery. So it was a qualitative study, um, which really gives you an in-depth look at um, either a phenomenon. So the phenomenon here was the patient's experience with having the hernias. Um, so I got interested in qualitative research when I was doing my Master's of Education. And then I was fortunate when I first started practice to have some mentors who, um, like PhD um, mentors, um, who helped me um, to do further qualitative research. Um, so really it's that in-depth in understanding of a phenomenon. Um, other research we've done is um, we've looked at patient experience with you know, having a pelvic exempt or having a, a sacrectomy. Um, Andrea Covelli looked at um, why women choose to have a contralateral prophylactic mastectomy and kind of really trying to understand that phenomenon. Um, so qualitative is quite, is uh, fairly different from um, a lot of the scales that people use, and I sometimes use them as well. I'm not as familiar with them, but, um, you know, when you look at, you know, like things like a HAD scale, like, um, or a patient satisfaction scale, that gives you numbers about how someone's feeling and you can track how they're feeling um, and doing over time, but it doesn't give you, like, that in-depth understanding of, of, um, of, a, of, of a phenomenon or why something's happening. Awesome. That's, a, that's amazing, Dr. Wright. Thank you very much. As, a, as someone, obviously, who uh, lives in the surgical oncology world, but certainly HPV, I haven't thought much about melanoma in a very long period of time, except when the odd patient painting with METS is, uh, is referred to us, maybe indirectly. But, uh, yeah, that was that was tremendous. What would you say to the average general surgeon that maybe works in a community practice uh, in regards to... Um, maybe not so much assessing these patients up front, but in particular, maybe pitfalls and 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 uh, um, referral patterns. Um, who should they be sending? Should that be everybody? Should that be some? What's your advice on that? So, I, I certainly, certainly, I mean, general surgeons are absolutely able to do, uh, obviously, biopsy of melanoma, no question with that. They're general surgeons as well, I think, uh, in a patient who's clinically node negative, and we have lots of general surgeons in the province who provide excellent wide local excision and sentinel node um, surgery. Um, uh, lots of people, you know, lots of providers across the province do that. Um, I think uh, palpable lymphadenopathy, just as Amir was saying, it's. I think it's... I think the experience that trainees have now with, you know, taking out 
big bulky nodal disease from the acromegalar groin is in residency. It's fairly limited. I think those patients should be sent into a surgical oncologist or someone who's got experience with that. Um, there's also some interesting things we can do with those patients, and we just had a trial that closed at Sunnybrook. But if those patients have that melanoma marker, the BRAF marker, then you can treat sometimes treat those patients neoadjuvantly. So they can go on debrafenib and trimatinib, you know, for about four months or so. They can have their surgery, and then they can um, finish up their um, DABTRAM. But um, that kind of um, approach with the neoadjuvant, you need a, a, a medical oncologist to, um, you know, give the drugs and deal with the um, side effects, which can be quite significant. Um, so I would say the palpable adenopathy should go into a cancer center. Um, I think if a patient presents with in-transit disease, most of those patients end up coming into the cancer center as, as well. Um, it's not a super common scenario. It's that's about 7% of patients uh, who've had a melanoma greater than a millimeter. Um, I also think if a patient's uh, got metastatic melanoma, then those patients should be uh, discussed at a tumor board. Um, like if they've got a lung met or if they've got, you know, a liver met or a small bowel met, those, those patients should be discussed so you can figure out, you know, is surgery the right thing? Should they have systemic therapy first or or after the surgery, um, do they need radiation? Those are the patients that I think should definitely come into the cancer center. Francis, we can't thank you enough for doing this with us. Thank you so much. My pleasure. You've been listening to Cold Steel, the official podcast of the Canadian Journal of Surgery. If you've liked what you've been listening to, please leave us a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear your comments and feedback, so feel free to email us at podcast.cjs at gmail.com or connect with us on Twitter at CanJSurge. Thanks again.